Welcome to the RAQA Cafe, a conversational podcast with a couple of hosts that spend each episode talking about regulatory affairs and quality assurance topics. NAMSA is happy to bring the RAQA Cafe to you, where each episode features NAMSA consultants and their experiences. Be sure to visit NAMSA at namsa.com for more information and access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome to RAQA Cafe, a NAMSA MedTech podcast. Today we bring to you Episode 3, The Role of Software in Healthcare, Part 1, a focus on medical devices. Our guests for this conversation are Leslie Hines and Monica Montanez. Leslie is a Principal Quality Consultant and has been with NAMSA since 2010. She has over 30 years of experience in our industry. Leslie is a quality expert on medical device manufacturing and is NAMSA's voting representative on several AAMI working groups focused on software. Our second guest, Monica, has over 20 years of experience and has an extensive background in regulatory affairs. Monica is a principal strategy consultant in regulatory and is NAMSA's in-house expert on software as a medical device, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. We really appreciate you listening in and hope you enjoy our conversation. All right. Welcome again, Rich. Rich, we have another podcast episode to record today. We know we're joined by two additional experts in the field. Um, they have over like 30 years of experience, but I'm really excited, Rich. You know, I'm surprised that we made it this far. What about you? Yeah, episode three. We're we're veterans now. We we have more podcast experience than than most of the people at our company, right? <laughs> Something like that. Not saying, but, but uh, hi, Monica. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for joining hey. us today. So today we're going to be talking about software and medical devices, and software as medical devices, and then we've kind of used that launching point of the. Uh, of the the NAMSA blog post that we posted a couple months back on FDA releasing draft guidance, content of pre-market submissions for device software functions. But really, we just want to have a nice casual conversation with the two of you about software in our industry, because I feel from my experiences working with clients that we have a lot of people who know software development, but don't understand medical device manufacturing. And we have a lot of medical device manufacturers that are now starting to integrate software, but they don't really understand software development. So I'm hoping bringing two experts in and quality and regulatory, we can help our audience learn a bit more about the nuance of starting to integrate software in healthcare. I agree. So, yep. Go ahead. And I was going to say, you know, we have to ask the most important question first before we actually dive in, right? We are at the RQA Cafe. And we like to ask our guests, you know, what do they bring with them today to actually have a drink? I'll go first. I kept it simple this week. I have a lovely glass of apple juice. Very refreshing. Very crisp and clear. What about you, Rich? What do you have? I am drinking taro milk tea. And it's, it's a very purple drink for those of you who can't see, which would be the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and th there's no food coloring. This is actually the color of, of the taro. So. Okay. What about you, Leslie? I've got the sweet and spicy pomegranate tea because it's nice and warm and it's snowing here in Minnesota. So <laughs> keeps me nice and warm. So I shouldn't tell you I'm sitting at 56 degrees here in Indiana today. Yeah, don't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> and Monica out in Colorado, what's your beverage of choice? Well, my beverage of choice is the San Pellegrino. 
Italian sparkling momente, which is a clementine and peach. My favorite. Highly recommend it. It's only 35 calories. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. I actually have some of that downstairs. Today, it's the taro milk team. All right. So, well, now that I know that we're all refreshed and hydrated, (laughs) let's start into our conversation. So, I was wondering if if the two of you could kind of give us maybe a, a brief perspective of how you see software is different from hardware as part of our healthcare industry. And Leslie, why don't you go ahead and start us? Just from some of my experience with the quality system side of things, I've been working with companies that have had both hardware, you know, tangible medical devices, and then software alone or software in a medical device. And so what I've experienced is that there's a little bit of translation that needs to be done, especially on the the quality side where you've got developers that are used to doing their their software development and they're excellent at what they do. But one of the things that they're not used to when it gets to medical devices is documenting that process (laughs) that they need for FDA purposes. And then you've got the quality and engineering and operations people that are used to having the tangible pieces and they're not understanding the software side. And there really is, there's some differences, but there's a lot of similarities because when you've got a tangible medical device, you've got bits and pieces, you've got your components like extruded parts and nuts and bolts and wires and things like that, that you can see and you can put together into a finished device that you can hold and you can work with. But the software is more invisible. And really, the similarities are they do have components. And Monica can probably jump into this too, but they've got what they call units. And that's the smallest line of code that can't be broken down further. And then you put units together to form what they call items, kind of like a subassembly. And then you put those together to develop your overall software system, which is your finished device. So sometimes there's just some of that trying to cross the lines and help people understand the similarities, then they can talk to each other a little better and understand what's needed. Okay, thanks. And and Monica, what about from your perspective, from the regulatory world? Oh, in the regulatory world, I think Leslie really touched on this so well in how she explained the difference between hardware and software. In the regulatory world, the same thing applies in the fact that you know, documenting the evidence that's needed for the regulatory submission to FDA is key. And getting that information, you know, appropriately on a template format, however it's possible to to obtain that information. Also, the control of software with a widget, I call it a widget hardware, by the way. With a widget, I look at a widget, it's very, it's tangible. You see it, you touch it, you feel it. You know when you're freezing the design of a widget so much easier than you do with software, you can make changes to software so easily compared to hardware, for example. So there, you've really got to reel in your software developers and kind of stop them or get them to document your information appropriately in order to freeze the design. You know, you've, there's got to be a process there where they understand what that means. A lot of times they continue to design and develop the code 
without having those controls in place, you lose a lot of really key information that needs to be documented for the regulators. I have a follow-up question to that. So you talked about design freezing. Is it a better perspective to think of it as a goalpost and that here's where we, you need to get your software to be at, you know, to present to the FDA? Because I, I feel like using the term, I mean, I know we talk about design freezes and that's, okay, you've gotten to this point, you've got to stop making changes because you've got to submit and get an approval for your product. But um, like you said, with software, it's so easy to change and manipulate. Like how, I guess, how achievable is a design freeze versus projecting that here's where we need to get the, the software to so that we can present it to the FDA? Well, when I talk about design freeze, I guess it's, that's the terminology that we all know about from the world of hardware and software. I guess when we talk about software as a medical device, standalone software, we're talking about code freeze. So let me rephrase that. But when you do have code freeze, just like design freeze, you're not necessarily submitting to FDA. You're at that stage. You're, you're looking at verifying and validating your final design. Okay. Because when, when you perform that testing, whether it's software verification or validation or system testing, that code is frozen. And that's technically your production released type product. Yeah, and I think in some some cases, um, just when I've been working with developers, because a lot of times they'll they'll have their code written in it and it works and they know that it works and but they don't understand why they need to document that. And so I've given them kind of an analogy of when you're in school and in math class and you their teacher gives the the math problem to fix, you know, to to figure out and you can do that in your head. But the teacher always wants you to show your work. So exactly. that kind of helps them to understand, oh, then I need to document this for FDA. <laughs> That's good. Perfect, I'm gonna start perfect that. analogy. Yeah, I'm going to start using that as well to like show your work. Just to build upon what you're talking about. So we talked about the difference between hardware and software, right? So now what's the difference between when you say software in a medical device versus software as a medical device? Can we try to just explain or break that down just a little bit? Go ahead. Yeah, software in a medical device is, is software is affiliated with hardware. And a good example of that would be like a pacemaker. You know, it has software. Something that's not medical device, you've got an airplane that's flying through the air. That's hardware. And guess what's navigating that aircraft? Software. Now, with software as a medical device, it's a standalone software. It's not affiliated with hardware whatsoever. It may have hardware components that's part of the system, for example, but it is considered standalone software. Leslie, I'll hand it over yeah. to you. But Yeah, kind of like it's really by itself. And maybe like an example would be imaging software or something, a software program where it makes a prediction on what's your chance of having a certain disease state or drug resistance or something like that. Yeah. Another example of standalone software can be a mobile medical app. It can be a clinical decision support type software. It can be a medical device data system. However, those are class one devices related to FDA. It can be a number of different types of devices, but it's standalone. Like, for example, Leslie's example of a diagnostic device where a PAC system delivers an image to the software and that software may 
either do post-processing or pre-processing elements to that image and add to that image. And the output of that, that software is, can be diagnostic or therapeutic. Yeah, like an algorithm that can figure out, look from the image and then make a determination of what's the best placement to put a brain probe or something like that. Yeah, that could be an image guidance system. Mm-hmm. So I, I've, I've talked with both of you fairly frequently over the last couple of years about you know projects with clients. And, and one of the things that I find interesting is that, so in hardware, we have the classifications, right? Class one, class two, class three, or you know, depending on the region you're in, they all have their classification systems. But then also in IEC 62304, you've got the software risk classifications. And I, I've seen a little bit of struggle with where are the lines, where are the red lines for companies on determining, you know, when when have they stepped into a higher risk classification? So I think one of the examples you kind of brought up was if you're using software to diagnose something, I think that's a, that's a red line, right? That immediately pumps you up into a higher risk category for whatever your software is doing, whether it's, you know, a part of a piece of a hardware pr- providing that diagnosis or it's an imaging analysis versus software that's providing data, but then either a physician or a user then interprets, you know, that data in helping do a diagnosis. You know, are there, am I right with that? Or are there, are there other things that really need to be factored in when you're looking at the classification of the software? Well, first of all, the ind- indications for use, the intended uses is the same thing you would do with the, with the, with any kind of medical device. You need to understand first what that indications for use will be with that particular device. And once you know and understand that, then you can move on and, and, and look, look at the device itself and look at the regulatory process, the regulatory system, like the function, the components. And then you can determine based on that, when you talk about risk management, there's ISO 14971, which is predominantly the recognized standard for risk management. But with these types of devices, FDA has worked in, in uh, parallel with the European Union and developed a guidance document on how to determine standalone software risk management processes. And it all depends on how that software is going to be used. If it's going to actually offer guidance to the clinician, will it make the decision all on its own without any human interaction? All of those things, how critical is the intended use of this software? Again, going back to your indications for use and understanding what what it's actually going to be used for, what patient population, what environment. There's a lot of questions that I ask clients to understand their device entirely. And then we move on to that risk management process and utilize the software as a medical device guidance document to understand how they're going to use that software, how the clinician is going to use the software determines the risk. And how dependent that clinician is for that decision and the diagnosis and treatment. Exactly. Exactly. And that also, and that's that's a challenge because then that's, I tell clients, you can be a 510K device or you can be a, the highest risk device. It's all up to you. The next thing I factor in when I talk to the client is what kind of claims are you going to make with this device? 
And if they claim that it's going to cure, you know, heart disease, it's going to be a determining factor in what determines whether or not a patient's going to have a stroke in the next year or so, you know. And, you know, that's a good point. I, I think what I was going to ask, um, Leslie, so I think Monica just mentioned like that regulatory landscape, that regulatory assessment that she does to understand how that device is going to be intended to be used. From a quality side, what is the assessment or is there a, is there a landscape that you look at to help clients understand what the quality requirements would be for them as well? Yeah, I think the combination with the 62304 safety classification and then if it's being sold in the U.S., the FDA has the level safety level of concern or the software level of concern. When you start going through those areas, then that helps determine the level of testing and the level of documentation that you're going to need and how you would set up your design history file and your risk management file. And so, like Monica said, at the beginning, you really need to get the intended use and then start going through those tools to to figure out what safety class and what level of concern. And then you start from those, it tells you what level of documentation you're going to need from the quality side. And you, you said my favorite word, risk management. I mean, everybody, <laughs> anybody who talks to me for more than five minutes, that's where my conversations always go. And, you know, it's really important that you start that risk management process early on because it helps you define all the things that happen later and, you know, not just what you need to test, but also what your indications are and and helping you identify your classifications and your pathway forward. But I, those hazards I, are and yeah, yep. Hazards. I, I practice sometimes with my kids and okay, here's the situation. So what could go wrong? <laughs> sometimes it's based on discovery and sometimes it's based on forethought. I'm really curious with with both of you so involved with software, you know, and, and Monica, I know you you live an incredibly healthy lifestyle. I should be taking notes, but I'm curious if you ever have come across like an application in like the app store or, or even seen something out in the wild where you looked at it and you're like, Oh, this is, this is a medical device. I wonder if the, uh, you know, if the app developer realizes that, you know, they've got a medical device that, that they haven't properly, uh, you know, put through the paces. Yeah. That finally, FDA recognized the need to generate a guidance document for wellness devices. Yes, I have a fabulous Garmin watch. Keeps track of all my steps, the altitude, my blood pressure, all those wonderful readings. I know this is not validated for as a medical device, but I know a lot of people really focus on this. I have a lot of clients that come to me and say, Hey, I have this great idea. It's usually a wearable. You know, I, I think it, I think it could be something that could be a medical device. Could you could you help us understand the regulatory mm -hmm. pathway if there's one? And I pull out that guidance document, the wellness FDA guidance document on wellness devices, and I also look at the mobile medical apps because a lot of those, to your point, Rich, those there's a million apps out there, but there are so many apps that are medical devices. And then there are some apps that are really borderline. And that's where we really help people understand, do they want to stay in the non-medical device realm or do they want to, you know, move in and penetrate the medical device, you know, realm. So this is something we do a lot for our clients. 
So I think it's important, yeah, for for that regulatory piece up front to make sure that they're picking the right kind of device type, because sometimes there may be the technology has gone farther than what the device types are out there. And they may pick something that is non, you know, it's like an exempt device when it really isn't now, because now it's got information going over the cloud to a doctor to make a decision where it, it might be an off the shelf wearable device, but now it's adding that diagnosis and that level of information that it makes it a whole different animal. So those types of non-FDA regulated devices can be telemedicine or telehealth type devices, could be video conferencing, streaming under those types of devices. Mobile health communication devices are considered non-regulated, as well as health IT, hospital network infrastructures, also not regulated, and general wellness devices that we just discussed, and fitness and health trackers. Those are non-FDA regulated type devices. The devices that fall in between FDA regulated and non-regulated are medical device data systems, which is health analytics and data visualization type devices. Yeah, and that's good to know as well. And just to build upon that thought too, since, you know, both Leslie and yourself have worked with different companies with medical devices, what are some, I guess, green flags that we like to say here? What are some things you have seen that companies do well? I know um, early in the podcast, we talked about documentation and I think I heard Monica laugh because we, as regulatory, we, we, we like documentation. But what are some things you could say that, you know, I've worked with this company or I've advised this company on and they have done this pretty well and it has been successful. And the reason why I ask that question is because for me, we, we are, as I say, I, we find pre-subs very useful, especially when it comes to like software. Like we need to understand, you know, hey, we have, we have this, this software as a medical device. You know, we did some testing. Is this enough? You know, we, we understand the classification, but do we make the right assessment? Is there, is there things you could say, you could suggest to a client that they should do to help to make their submission a success? Well, with the pre-sub process, what I've seen lately with software as medical device, specifically with AI, machine learning type devices, I received feedback today on a software as a medical device client today, for example. And one of the things that they emphasize the need for is to make sure with your pre-submission, when you do a pre-submission, you're technically your first pre-submission, you're focusing on the regulatory pathway and you're ensuring that you give FDA enough information to help them give you adequate feedback. And one of the things I find with clients, if they're early on in the design and development of a device like this, they're not going to have enough information for FDA to give them a really good set of feedback. The FDA is looking from the very beginning. They want to understand the data. Where's your data coming from? What type of data are you gathering for your device? What type of, what data is being used? for the model development of your device? Do you have a specification for your algorithm? How many algorithms do you have? What does your algorithm do? What's the principle of operation of those algorithms for that medical device? They want to get into the technical details. And that's something that with software in a medical device, we tend to focus more on the hardware than we do with the software. And what I find that when it comes down to software, pulling this information from clients at very early stages is pretty, it's, it's a challenge sometimes. 
And sometimes we have to go through several iterations of pre-submissions with these types of products rather than, you know, maybe one or two with the software and hardware. And I think for me, just success story with a client that it was a small startup and it's a software in a medical device. And the management understood very clearly from previous experience that they needed to get the quality system up and running early on and not as an afterthought down the road. So that's where I think they were very successful and they had a really good, well-rounded team that had experience with both, you know, tangible medical devices and also the software. And they were able to really communicate well and, and make those translations for each other so that they're able to work well together, but getting that quality system piece in upfront. And so that you've got your documentation at the early stage and not having to go back and try to retrospectively put things in place. That's a key. Oh, I agree. I agree. I see more companies are successful when they think about their quality management system up front rather than later. And then it's an afterthought. And you're always backpedaling. Yeah, always. Yeah. And the other thing I also see successful companies too, by the way, is they recognize the need to ensure they have the right resources in place. You know, like a data analyst, you know, there's different key players than just a biomedical engineer with these types of devices. And even a software developer, there's people who have to manage the quality of this data and be able to create the right databases that house this data. And because you're dealing with large amount of information, so much, it's amazing how much information that's fed into some of these medical devices in order to make these decisions. And that's the reason why they're, they're so sought after now, because these devices can make decisions so much quicker, faster than, than a physician can make a decision on a, uh, for a patient, for example. It's interesting to me, you know, software is, is, is so young now in our industry relative to everything else. And I'm going to be interested to see in how the next, you know, 10 years play out and that will there be certain companies that become experts in software medical devices that take, you know, will, will there be a large entity that has really figured out how to do software in our industry and, and taken the reins? But one of the questions, and we talked about this briefly before we started the podcast, but you know, there, there are a couple of things that are really unique to software that sometimes don't get considered, at least when you're developing the product. And that's things like cybersecurity. I, I think it's becoming more important now. But So you mentioned cybersecurity. I think um, HIPAA, or I forget what the EU version of HIPAA EDPR. is. Thank you. <laughs> I knew you'd know. And um, you know, cloud-based storage or server storage, all of these things are unique to software. Are those things that you're seeing manufacturers or, or, or developers are now considering right away, or is it still something that you know we occasionally have to remind them to, to think about? Go ahead, Lizzie. Well, I think it's kind of evolving. I've actually on the Amy Software Working Group, and there's a group of people local to the Twin Cities that we get together for lunch periodically. And one of the things that is coming up more and more is IT network issues where that's not getting thought of as much as far as cybersecurity. People are missing that. And so I think that's a new area where there's some concern where adverse events could happen mm -hmm. if you don't get your IT guys in your network IT guys involved. 
you know, I never want to pull lessons from watching commercial TV, but it's it's amazing how many of these uh, these shows based on like hospitals or or emergency services. Now there's almost always one episode now on related to cybersecurity. You know, either you know they've been locked out of their system where they can't get access to it, or you know somebody's hijacked a pacemaker. To <laughs> it's it's interesting, but I mean, you know, these writers for these industries pull from real life experiences so or at least talk to people about what could happen so do you guys sit and think about that at all about you know what could happen with software i'm curious if you have any thoughts on that and i think if you're doing risk management you've really got to stretch your yeah. your thinking you almost have to you have to think like a hacker <laughs> well yeah that's that's i think one of the things that we need to go back to rich to your point is with a design control process with any type of device, you've got to have your requirements specification defined. And in your requirements, you're going to define you don't want this particular device to have any issues. And what would those issues be from a risk perspective? As you're creating that, that product risk or requirements specification, you're also generating your preliminary risk assessment at the same time. So you should be thinking about all of those areas where you need to understand your needs and the intentions of your device and what your intended use is, going back to the intended use and the indications for use. What is it going to do? What environment? What patient population? You know, what controls need to be in place? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. So when when ISO 14971 was updated in 2019, and then subsequently, the the technical report. Well, I can't say my numbers today, but um, anyway. Um, thank you. When, <laughs> when that came out, there's an appendix in there where they help you characterize the your device and from a safety perspective. And probably the biggest change to that list of, I think, 37-odd questions were questions related to software and data safety and um, and accessibility to software. So I think we're moving in the right direction, but I would love to look at that list sometime with, with somebody from software and say, you know, are are we still missing something that we need to be asking if somebody's making software in a, or software as a medical device? But maybe that's a separate conversation. That's another podcast. <laughs> yeah. <it's> another. <laughs> maybe that's a chance to bring them back again, Rich, you know, <laughs> these questions. So the last point I had or last question I want to touch on was just more of software and like when it comes to human factors, design and usability. Have both of you seen any more questions around that? Has FDA been asking questions when it comes to have you considered how a user is going to use your, so use your device or use your software? Are there any use errors associated with how you use this software? Has there been any questions from that you have seen working with clients? Yes, I, I have a number of a number of FDA feedback for for clients, software as a medical device clients, has been generated focusing on human factors. The need for FDA to review the protocol in advance before you execute the human factors testing. As we all know, human factors plays a key role in software development, along with cybersecurity now. To Rich's point, it's kind of more and more incorporated into the risk management process. But I get a lot of questions related to the FDA guidance document. Some most sponsors do not really take that guidance document seriously, and FDA does. 
every element in that guidance document needs to be considered. Like, for example, who is your intended user, for example? What is their education and background? You know, that is the seems very simple, but that seems to be something that tends to be missing in detail. And if I point to something that's continuously brought up by FDA, it seems to be that and understanding, you know, your clinical flow of your product and how it's being used and what your goals are from a usability perspective. And what kind of risks, use it, a user risk assessment needs to be also generated along with your risk management process, which is fed into your risk management process. They want to see that, your specification and your protocol in advance. And I highly recommend it because if you don't, you've already gone through this very expensive process with 15 intended users according to the guidance document. And to find out during the final review of your marketing application that you've got some gaps, it's not the time to, to experience this. Right. I think just from a practical standpoint, as far as user interfaces, that's something that comes up that they don't often think a lot about colors, different colors. Are people colorblind and would they not be able to use the interface if there are different colors coming up? The size of the font, how do you get to your IFU? Is that attached to your about screen or is that separate? And, you know, just different things, messaging and and things like that and how they would use that user interface, I think is something that gets missed a lot. No, thank you. That's a very good point. Um, I've seen some questions as well when it comes to human factors and how do you plan to use your device and try to help to answer those questions. And I think Monica raised a good point. You don't want to be in your review and then hearing, hey, we have to go back and redo a part of our study or redo the entire study because we tend to, we, we have missed something. So I think these are very good points that were, that were brought up. Rich, any other questions from your end? No, Monica and Leslie, thank you so much for your time today. I, I love having these conversations. It's one of my favorite things now at NAMSA, just getting to talk with you guys about subjects that you're experts in, learning from you, having conversations. I'm walking away from this knowing a lot more than I did prior to, and you know that'll make me better at helping my clients in the future too. So I really appreciate the two of you taking the time to, to sit down with us and talk. I know it's a subject that you are really not comfortable talking about, so... <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, we should also, like, have them commit now to come back again. Yeah. Right, Rich? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is clearly a subject we could talk quite a bit more about. And, and actually, our next episode, episode four, will be a, a, will be the same topic on software, but we're going to bring in two, uh, two specialists from the IVD world to talk about how software has affected their, their environment. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation on the role of software in healthcare. Our focus today was on medical devices. Our next episode will be part two of the role of software in healthcare with a focus on in vitro diagnostics. We are excited to have NAMSA consultants Sonia Lecce and Duan Threets as our next guests. We hope you join us for our second part of this podcast. 